of you. Now, let me pause here for a second. I, I, I can't imagine that there was not some person who was faithful in obedience to the Lord. But this kind of hyper, hyperbolic statement reminds us that we have a responsibility to one another for holy things, to walk in righteousness with the Lord. And when some of us are failing, if we're not walking in such a way that in, within our community together that we're encouraging holiness and righteousness, we're failing one another. And I'm going to make a comment about that in just a minute. So I think the Lord is, is looking at the nation, though somebody may have been right, but there's not a, a consistent change or a call to holiness, then there's a failure as a whole. And so even, doesn't that economy play out in the church life? I mean, if we are not walking righteously together and holding one another accountable to righteous things, the sins of one another will inhibit us as a body. So you may remember Wednesday night when I, I mentioned preaching on this text uh, this morning as I was thinking through it, the call is not just about the stewardship matters. The call is really for us to consider what is going on in our own hearts to evaluate and to seek the Lord's face about what we may be doing both individually and corporately that, that is sin that needs to be repented of. Can I, can I be really, like, transparent for a moment? I always ask that rhetorical question, and you always go, y'all don't ever answer, and I'm just going to be transparent anyhow. My friend David Evans and I were talking about some things about the distinction about pastoral ministry and one of the things that's unique about teaching and preaching. Don't, please don't ever think that I'm up here preaching, like, a prideful message or from a place uh, or a position of authority that is, um, I, I guess, one that, that's not, well, let me just re rephrase it. Understand that the text that I'm teaching from, I've typically been working on for two or three weeks minimum. Setting that out, praying over these things, and, and when I say the two or three weeks minimum, that's what I'm doing wrestling through this individual text. That's not the months I've set out texts and been praying over the entirety of, the, of these things. I think a lot of times people think that preachers sit or stand up here and present a message and it's like pointing and, and, and ostracize or, or, or criticizing you. The truth is, this message has been confronting me for weeks on end. And I've had to wrestle through these things. And so I, I'm not saying these things to, to be like, hey, I'm pounding on you because I've been pounding on a whole lot longer. And my heart's been broken in my own life over some things. And, and I can even share this, that if you were here Wednesday night, and I, and I haven't mentioned this to Katie, but for Katie to share what she shared, she doesn't stand and speak, at, like really ever. And when she does, she's typically really nervous. I'm not going to pick on her about her habits. Um, but, but even Wednesday night, I watched her, and she didn't do those things. She, she was, it was obvious to me as her husband that she'd been reflecting because we'd been reflecting on the things that the Lord wants us to change in our own lives. And, and, and I'm not saying that to elevate us. I'm honestly saying these things to elevate the fact that we all have a need to repent. Sin can take us over so easily and so quickly. And, and, and I've constantly thought about this as we're 
thinking through how we can become a stronger evangelistic church. And, and folks, I'm, I'm honestly concerned about our culture in this sense because our culture doesn't think that sin is an issue anymore. And, and I, I know that's, that's a, a large, again, kind of generalization, but I think about going and canvassing pe- people's homes and talking to them about the gospel. Do you realize it's going to be very, extremely difficult to talk about sin and the hope of the gospel because people don't see their need for sin any longer in the world we live in. It's a concept that is lost on us today because the culture has justified its actions in so many ways and it's diminished the holiness and righteousness of God. We don't live in a world that is uh, understands those things quickly. So the, the steps in evangelism are going to be very, very slow uh, in process to get people to be aware of their need for Christ. And apart from understanding their need for, for Christ, they won't repent. Yet the, I think, therefore, where repentance has to begin and a sensitivity about sin has to begin is within our, our, our own hearts and our own minds so that lost people see that we are tender to the gospel and it means that we've got to be sensitive to the Lord in such a way that we recognize our own struggles and that like the Israelites here the Lord is confronting and he is confronting us about things and let us not think well just because we're in church and we're we're in a church that has a lot of things healthy about us even though we've got weaknesses that we can just skirt by our sinfulness Because I think too many times if we skirt those things and we try to justify them, we can't move in health where the Lord wants us to be. And it's not, listen, please hear this carefully. This is not about the finances, even though that's a part of it. It's about deeper issues that are happening within the nation of Israel at this point in their life. And we need to hold these same kind of mirrors up to ourselves and we need to be sensitive enough to respond rightly to the Lord's call. So, here's, here's let, me, let me kind of prove this a little bit more biblically. So in verse 9, we see that you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he says in verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. First of all, I, I don't want to read too much into this, but I studied a bunch of guys about this text. And when they look in, and uh, I think this, there's an aspect that this is totally legitimate, when the Lord confronts them about bringing the full tithe into the, the storehouse, remember, he'd already talked about the tithe in, in verse uh, 8, I think is it, it is. Yes, verse 8, he talks about the tithes and contributions. First of all, the tithes is that certain part of the income that they would uh, have set aside. It is a 10% offering. But the contribution is an extra offering that speaks to much more than just the tithe. So I think we need to be aware of that. And then when in verse 10 when he says, bring the full tithe, there's something much more than just about the finances. I think that it has to do with the first fruit of the crops, what they've earned as selling those crops. I think it has to do with offerings, that they're being generous in those things. But I think it also extends to other things, things like their time, their talents, and themselves. Because if the nation, and the Lord says this later in the text, he wants them to be a 
a delight to all the other nations. The only way that can happen is through them presenting their time, their talents, and themselves to the ministry of, of the Lord's work because at this point, the, the, the nation of Israel is still supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles. There's the promise of that that's still present in the Old Testament. And so their ministry is being hindered because they are not presenting all of who they are to the Lord. And, and so I think that's a, a specific point in the text that we see the Lord confronting them about the internal aspects of their lives. So this brings us to the second part uh, of the message, or second point, the promise and the problem. Here this is, is really found in verses 10 through 15. So here's what's going on. Let me just try to nutshell this. Um, basically, the people were being hypocrites. They, they were demanding these things of the Lord or, or, or justifying them, themselves uh, before the Lord, saying, well, how can we rob you? We can't rob you, certainly. You, got, you own everything. And, and yet they're in those excuses that, that justification is they're being hypocrites because they're really not worshiping the Lord as they're called to worship Him. They're not, um, they're, their ungodly attitude is undermining everything about the Lord. So let's look at back at this because I think it's important to see how we see this ungodly attitude come out. Let's, let's pick up in verse 11. He says, and this is the promise, okay? He says, I will rebuke the devourer for you. So, so let me make this clear. In this context... Certainly, the land and the, the blessing of the land producing fruit is such an important piece for the Israelites. So they had the, the, the Lord's um, curse had been that they were, he was allowing the, the crops to be eaten and the devourer to come in and destroy their ability to have uh, healthy crops and all these things to, to end up in being a blessing in the economy of things. And he says, the promise is, if you'll return to me, I will stop the devourer from eating your, your crops and you will be blessed. Now let's keep reading. So that's that, that sense of the promise. He says, for, for you, so that uh, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, so here's this promise, then all of the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that a cool thing? F folks, think about this in the sense of our current culture and context. The church doesn't tend to be a land of delight anymore. The lost people look at us and, and see anything about the church but being a, a, a place that, or people group, that leads people to delight. They look at us and think that we criticize, that we judge, that, that we are harsh, that we are unaccepting. And I'm not saying that we have to embrace all their values. As a matter of fact, I think we need to be countercultural in our sense of values. And I, I think in this sense, Malachi and the prophecy here is calling the people to be countercultural in the sense that their value is to be about the holiness and righteous things of God. They're not to compromise in any way. We're not to compromise those things in any way. But we are to respond to the Lord in such a way that the nations look at us, that the lost people of the world look at us and say, there's something uniquely different about them because the Lord is blessing them. Folks, if we will live in such a way that we are tender and surrendered to Christ in all things, the Lord will bless. And the nations, the lost people of our communities will look at us and say, there's something uniquely different about them. And they will be drawn to the hope of the gospel. That's the only hope 
that they have, Christ is the only hope that any of us have. And we've got to be a people that elevate him and his principles above every convenience that we so easily drift into. You, you see how this text is so pertinent to us today? So, so here's the, this promise is that the Lord would bring, make them a delight. And then look at this, this the problem that the Lord still indicates in verse 13. He said, they said, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. So, so he's like indicting them. You're, you're looking and saying, but Lord, you're chastising. This is hard against us. But you say, how have we spoken against you? See, this is that disputation. The Lord's confronting them. They think it's too hard. But, and he's, he's saying, you've spoken against me. I know it. And they say, well, but, um, and he accuses them in verse 14. You've said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And, and so here's the, what the Lord is getting at. The people are saying, Lord, it's just too tough. And, and here's the, the interesting thing. I like, was trying to figure out what this idea of why this picture of the mourning, that they're, they're walking in this grief before the Lord. Here's the idea. It's a metaphor that they have this picture or sense of doing what's right. But so, so outwardly, they're grieving, but inwardly, they're not. It's that picture that we would say is the hypocrisy. We look at the New Testament say they're operating as Pharisees. is like the whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inwardly, they're dead. Folks, if that's not part of this call for us to reflect, we can do a lot of things outwardly that look really good, especially when we look at that compared to the culture. But the truth is, if we're not careful, our hearts can still remain desperately wicked. That's why this, this text to me is such a key point for us where we are in our church life to go hold up the mirror and look beyond the surface and say, how are you doing in your heart? Because I could easily say, well, I'm not robbing God of tithes and offerings, but my heart still is really wicked. My heart is walking in such a way that I'm still accusing God, well, that's too hard. That, 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 I don't really need to do that. that. People won't understand. I can start to justify a lot of ways for me not to respond in a dedicated obedience to the Lord. But I can still outwardly look really good. I can look like I'm doing the religious thing of mourning or, or doing the religious thing of having a righteousness about me when really internally it's, I'm a mess and I'm, I'm in rebellion against the Lord. So this is, let me, let me go back to this phrase because I think this is interesting and I want to make this point really clear because I think this is where like the whole of the context of the text comes into play really in an important way. It's interesting because the Lord has talked about his desire to pour down in verse 10. It says, pour down for you a blessing. Okay, so this, this repeated idea that he wants to bless and if, he could, if we could get it right, serving the Lord, he'll bless so that's, that's what he's getting at. Let me give you the idea of this idea of what it means to, for the Lord to pour down a blessing. The literal translation of that phrase is, until there is a failure of sufficiency. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
Think about the Lord. He has a sufficiency within his storehouse and reserves to pour out for us. Is there ever going to be a failure of sufficiency on the part of the Lord? Let me go back. Malachi 3.6, the context of this is based or rooted in the immutable God that we serve. His sufficiency for us will never change. So, so you see what I'm getting at? Based on who we know the Lord to be, this deep theological principle, it becomes very practical because he does not fail in his sufficiency in any way. Therefore, when we think about him and our need to respond to him, we ought to recognize that he is good always, that his compassions and his mercies, they never fail. There will never be an insufficiency on our God's part. So therefore, when we serve him, we know that God will always supply our needs according to his riches and glory. What, what that should do for us is establish such a level of confidence that no matter what circumstance we face, no matter that being a, a physical or tangible circumstance or an emotional or spiritual circumstance, we know that the Lord is faithful to us. That's why when we strip away our excuses and return to Him, we find Him waiting with loving open arms. Immediately, my, my mind jumps to the parable of the prodigal son. <laughs> that, that he greets us in such a way that it's, go kill the fatted calf. The prodigal has returned. Why would we hesitate to not clear our, 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 to clear our hearts and not respond to him how he desires for us to do that? So, here's, here's what I, I want to remind you of. Because this is, this is so interesting again to me. As the people are addressing this, and the Lord is confronting them, here's this sense that I get, and, and let's go back to verse 13 and look at this. The people, the, the, the Lord says, your words have been hard against me, but, but they respond, and he's, you know, here, how have we spoken against you? And then he says, you've said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord? The, the text communicates a community environment. Does that make sense what I'm getting? It's not about the individual. This is about the community. And what the people were doing is at some level, and I get this sense, that there's this murmuring and complaining that's going on amongst them about the things of the Lord. So it's not just an individual thing. This is also a corporate thing. And so here's my point. I want to read this statement to you because I think as I pen this, this is the clearest. No one, this is the indictment, no one or the warning, no one robs God without robbing himself and others at the same time. Let me repeat that. And I want you to, to hang on that for thought for just a second. No one robs God without robbing himself and others at the same time. See, I think we live in a world where, where we think that faith is so individual, like it's such an individual aspect, that I have a relationship with Christ, and that, that's my own individual walk, that we forget 
that there's an economy about Christ being the head of the church, his body, where the Holy Spirit has gift, provided us gifts to serve one another. And we think that we can like live this individual life without consequences ever bearing on anyone else. Folks, that's not how it works. The Lord has placed us corporately in local bodies and in a body universal where how we live our lives privately does impact one another corporately. It impacts us as a body and it impacts the people that we are in community with in our communities at large that are lost. And if we think that we can isolate ourselves and, and hide from the Lord or hide from one another and not change like how the, the things are in a healthy world, we've, we've, we don't understand the truth of the gospel and the heart of what Christ is and, and the meaning of the church. That should be a warning shot across our bows about our own need to be what we've talked about as a, uh, looking at these healthy characteristics the last several weeks. Not only corporately, but I've said this, we need to look individually at how we're doing. And this morning, we need to each individually make sure that we're clean before the Lord and right and also do that corporately because we cannot live isolated from one another. So, man, huge warning sign. The, the promise is to bless and make us the delight of nations. But the problem is if we don't do these things well, we cannot see the Lord do those things for us. But listen, there's one more great thing. Look at this. We're going to now look at the preferred people. Verses 16 through 18. Then, those who feared the Lord. See, what I said earlier about some people doing things right, it's in the text. I wasn't just making it up, okay? So, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Immediately, there's a community aspect to this. They, they were speaking to one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. He says this, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Wow. Let me describe these preferred people. Simple. There's two things about them. The first is they fear the Lord. The second is they talk to one another. I think those are just simple things, but they're very profound things. What does it mean to fear the Lord? That's an Old Testament idea um, that is, is certainly one that has to do with the motivation to recognize the holiness of the Lord. And in recognizing that holiness of the Lord, it motivates us to serve to Him, to love Him, to trust Him, and to be obedient with Him because the, we recognize the Lord as one's Savior and Master. And I'm going to expound upon that just a minute more. What does it mean to talk with one another? Well, if you look at your cross-references, I'll give you a quick hint. I love this little cross-reference. It actually points to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 is a simple passage we know as the Shema, the, the passage where it's uh, given to Moses where he's instructed uh, to, to tell the people to talk about the things of the Lord. It begins, uh, Shema, O Israel. I think that's right. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And then it goes on to say, talk about him when you sit, when you rise up. 
placed the, the word on the, the doorposts of the, the, the doors so that when you leave the, the house, you're reminded of the word. It's the principle that as families, we are to be invested in the things of the Lord. That as a family, as a church family, we are to be invested in the things of the Lord. That we're to communicate about these things. That it is to the, 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 uh, our focus and talk, the way we speak to one another, the conversations that we have are to be infused intentionally with the things of God. Folks, I'll, I'll be really blunt for a second. I think one of the greatest problems with uh, the, the American church is that we've been influenced by a political agenda and we talk a lot about politics and not about the things of God. And, and we'll talk about the things that we do routinely in our lives, but we don't encourage one another with words of Scripture, with prayer for one another. And we've talked about this at length, and Michael, I'm so thankful for how you did this this morning with Mark, but it's not just, hey, I'm going to pray for you, but we pray immediately. And I know it's awkward, but if you can't pray with somebody like physically present with them, how do you pray with them over the phone? Do it. It, it. It's not an odd thing. The truth is, if we can stop and be people of prayer in every situation, it's a good thing. I got to visit with a church family last Friday, and we got to stop and just pray over family things and things in the church. It was a sweet moment for us to do that. Folks, if I can encourage you, that's one of the things that we said we're doing well with prayer. I still think, even though we could say we're doing well, we can always be better at being prayerfully dependent. Let's talk about the things of the Lord with one another consistently. Very, very practical. The second thing, though, let's go back to what it means to fear the Lord. Because I want to unpack a, a quick verse in the New Testament. And if you want to turn there, that's great. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm not going to read all of this for the sake of time, but I want to give you a little bit of context about what Paul's doing here in 2 Corinthians 5. And he mentions here the fear of the Lord. And I want you to see how he relates this and why I'm relating this to Malachi chapter 3 where he's talked about the fear of the Lord. That the people who are preferred, who, who are written down in this book, that were operating in a, obedience to the Lord, they possess this fear. How does Paul relate that to the gospel? So in verse... 1 through um, verse uh, 5, or actually through verse 10, Paul is basically talking about the promise and the hope of the gospel that has secured in the mind of the believer the hope of heaven. That, the, the, that by trusting in Christ, and he's done this earlier in, in the book as well, but he's uh, looking at the hope of Christ being that which gives us the hope of heaven. And so he's referred to the gospel again and again in this nutshell. And then verse 11, he comes in and he says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. So what he's done right here, he's talked about the gospel being that which transforms us and gives us the hope in heaven. And then he says, knowing the fear of the Lord. See, he's equating in a sense the, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sin, was buried and rose again on the third day to being a person who fears the Lord. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And then let's, let's continue. Verse 12, we are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. 
For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have, di- all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, uh, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, so here's what I'm trying to, to line up. Paul is relating this idea of fear of the Lord to us being in relationship with Christ and living obedient lives to him. Let it not be lost on us today that Malachi is a piece of the gospel. It's a part of the old covenant that's pointing to the new covenant that Paul sees fulfilled. And for us today, our desire, our deepest desire, our, our, the call to our obedience is for us to live for Christ. And that's what I would ask this morning in conclusion. How are you living for Christ? Are we serving him in such a way that he is getting the best of who we are? That, that our lives before him are surrendered in every way? So what I want to ask you to do this morning is we're going to enter this time of prayer. And I want you, every one of us, just take a minute to reflect on these things that we, we've looked at in the text this morning. I'll give you a couple instructions as we bow together in prayer. So let's do that. Father, I, I come to you this morning. I, I thank you for the text, um, for your word of hope, your word of promise. And your Lord, yes, certainly there are moments, I think, like, today where we, we get a sense that, that the scriptures prove true, that they are a, a, a double-edged sword dividing down to the marrow and the bone. Lord, it, that, that surgical procedure, so to speak, can be very painful, but the result in the end is really good because it brings help. It brings restoration. It brings hope. And so, Lord, there may be points this morning where we look over this text and say, yeah, there's, there's certainly, maybe I've been robbing God in my finances. I've not been trying to steward and grow in my, my generosity and, and ability to give. And Lord, that's, that's an area that I need to change. Maybe we've had attitudes where we've been wrong, where maybe where we've been murmuring and complaining, where our, where our worship has been short-sighted and we've had the outward appearance of mourning before you. But, but really, truly, Lord, in the depths of our hearts, We've been complacent. We've been callous. Lord, I know my own life. There's areas of that. I confess that to you. It's wrong. It's not just wrong. It's sinful. So, Lord, I pray that today we would be a a group of people, both corporately and individually, that would be humble bold enough, courageous enough, trusting enough to recognize that as your spirit searches us out, we can trust that you want us to return to you. But it begins with us being honest and transparent about our sin. Lord, if there is any wicked way before uh, within us that you would point that out and we would take just a minute here in the quietness of this room, to to speak to you about those things, to repent, to turn back to you, away from those things. 
and to confess it so that we can be cleansed before you and walk in righteousness. Lord, I also know that there's times that the enemy wants to come in and when we get honest before you, he wants to get us to, to be lax, to, to prevent us from really making the changes. And Lord, that's why it's so essential for us to be in community with one another. And so Lord, I, I do pray this, that for each of us, if there's been an area where you've convicted us and we have recognized our need to, to return to you and be restored, that we'd also have the courage to find someone to share that with so that we would find accountability and encouragement to, to walk rightly in obedience. That, that like the Israelites here, Lord, that, that they would talk about the, these things and they would recognize corporately if they shared that there's a fear of the Lord before us. And we want to be obedient. So Lord, in each of our hearts and minds right now, would you convince us and direct us to who that person would be that we could share these things with? That person may be here in this room. That person may be a phone call away. But Lord, I, pr I trust that, that you would put those people, those names on our hearts and minds, and that we would obe be obedient to pursue that conversation, to share how you're drawing us to, con to, to change and transformation in relationship with you. And we'd find freedom and hope. And Lord, having had those conversations, Lord, I pray that we would continue to walk that out in obedience with one another. So, Father, we know that, that you desire to do a good work in our lives. Lord, let us walk in a way where we see Christ, the head of the church, directing us and us receiving our instructions towards obedient living from him and being dedicated in service and worship and devotion to him. Lord, I think that's, that's really what Paul is driving us to in the text. So, Father, we want to surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Christ in obedience to Him to find fruit for our labor so that the promises that You give us where You would make us the delight of nations would be at the forefront of who we are. So Father, on behalf of our church this morning, I pray these things. May Your people be blessed as we walk in fruitful obedience to You. And Father, now as we conclude our service, I pray this one simple thing, that we would go from this place and we would connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. Lord, that happens both internally with one another in the church as well as externally in the community at large. And we want to do that so that Christ is exalted. We love you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for being here at the Grove Church to worship with us today. I trust that you'll have found the worship with Mason and Judd leading a really encouraging time, that the, the word being presented a, a both a challenge and encouragement to you. Um, we're not rushing you out by any means, have a, but have a great Sunday afternoon. I want to encourage you to, to connect in uh, fellowship with one another before you leave today. Um, and especially if you get a chance to uh, touch base with Mark, Mark, I'm going to let you just leave that up. Why don't you make your way out of the foyer, and if people want to encourage you and touch base before he leaves on Tuesday uh, for the, the summer to go up to uh, the Word of Life camp, please touch base with him 
And uh, I'm going to ask Scott and Karen, yes, you too, Heather, go hang out with your brother for a minute, okay? Y'all flip back there and and, uh, be with him. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon, and again, thank you for being here at the Grove Church.